This podcast is supported by Allstate. You see two people arguing with a cashier in the checkout line. Are they overreacting? Without context, you just don't know. Because context is key to understanding situations and people. That's why Allstate, along with the Aspen Institute and Facing History and Ourselves, created the Better Arguments Project, an initiative that teaches people the importance of listening to understand context and how to have constructive disagreements. Learn more at betterarguments.org. This is Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Just like the United States, Europe has taken steps to help the economy during the pandemic. The European Central Bank lowered borrowing costs and increased lending to help companies, governments, and citizens weather the economic crisis. Christine Lagarde is president of the European Central Bank, which serves the 19 EU countries that use the euro. We did what we had to do and what was needed in order to support the economy, in order to avoid fragmentation, in order to make sure that liquidity was flowing and that banks were able to lend to enterprises and to households. Still, she predicts Europe won't see a robust economic rebound until the second half of 2021. Ahead, she explains why. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Security Forum and the Aspen Economic Strategy Group. The European Union economy is the largest in the world, so its bounce back from the pandemic will have far-reaching ripple effects. Last year, the Eurozone economy shrank by 6.6%, reports the Associated Press, and it may have contracted in the first quarter of this year. Christine Lagarde says the economy is on crutches and isn't ready to stand on its own yet. But there's light at the end of the tunnel. Europeans are getting vaccinated, and the pandemic's peak is likely past. Still, Europe's rebound is lagging behind other major global economies like the United States. Lagarde speaks with David Rubenstein, co-founder and co-chair of the Carlyle Group, about the pandemic, predictions for the Eurozone, sexism in the finance industry, the impact on Europe from Brexit, and more. Their conversation took place April 28th. Here's Rubenstein. Uh, let me just start by saying that some people in Washington, as you know, were surprised that you were willing to take on this position because you are the uh, director of the IMF, which is a global organization and has enormous amounts of power around the world. The ECB is very important, of course, but it's focused mostly on Europe. Any second thoughts about having taken this position in light of what has happened in terms of the pandemic and so forth since you took on the job? Um, straight into your question, David, as usual, no second thought. It's a different perspective. I would characterize it as a smaller window, but a much bigger toolbox. Smaller window because instead of uh, looking at all countries of the world, assessing their economic developments, um, reviewing their policies, making recommendations, and occasionally uh, offering some financial support in consideration for efforts to restructure their economies, which was the traditional job, at the IMF, I look at this at from a smaller window because Europe is obviously only one region of the world and not 190 countries as uh, the IMF looks at, but much bigger toolbox and much, much bigger hammer uh, or bazooka, whatever you want to call it, but certainly the tools that can be used, the speed at which they can be used and the impact that those tools have uh, is has nothing to do with, with what we had at the IMF. It's, it's, it's heavy, it's very fast, uh, and it's, um, it has an instant impact. 
So when you want to get something done at the IMF, I don't know. I assume you could get it done. You had to lobby some people, maybe directors and so forth. When you want to get something done at the ECB, you, I assume you have to lobby some prime ministers or presidents or so forth. What is easier to get something passed? Is it easier to get something done at the IMF or easier to get something done at the ECB? I would say, David, that uh, given the status of the European Central Bank, which is an independent central bank, I mean, it's, it's actually written down in the treaty that I can take no instructions, no order from any heads of states in the European Union, and no European Union leader can attempt to direct my actions or determine my policy. It's in the treaty. The European Central Bank is an independent institution. So I don't have to lobby them. I don't have to um, um, seek their consent approval. Uh, if I want to inform them, alert them, uh, I, I, I'm at liberty to do that. But it's, it's a matter which is dealt with by the governing council of the central bank and the 25 members around the table have to come to conclusion about the policies that we want to put in place. So I'd say faster at the European Central Bank than, than it would be at the, uh, at the IMF. The IMF is, look, it's not a, a sleep institution by any means. That's not what I want to say, but it, it has to prepare, alert, campaign, lobby, and, and so on and so forth, particularly when, the, particularly when there are some political issues uh, that can oppose different uh, uh, geopolitical forces. Okay, let's talk about the European economy right now. Um, in your view, has the pandemic's effect on the European economy, uh, the worst is behind Europe now, or do you think it's too early to say the worst is behind Europe and the pandemic could rise again? So in your view, where's the state of the economy because of the pandemic? You know, it's, I think it's, too, it's still too early to say, uh, and I remember vividly back in uh, last June, after the first wave um, had come and gone, we thought, okay, this is over. And everybody went out for the summer and enjoyed themselves with some caution, but essentially assuming it was gone. And then it came back and the second wave was, was on us all. So we, we have gone through the third wave here in Europe. In, in many countries, most scientists would agree that uh, the peak is now behind us and we are gradually going down in terms of hospitalizations, in terms of contagions, in terms of uh, all the downside impact of uh, the, the third wave. But there's still countries which are taking some uh, lockdown measures, containment measures, and where uh, the virus is still extremely active. So I'd say probably past the peak of the third wave, uh, Downside risks, obviously, because there are still variants and, and, and new um, you know, evolution of this, this damn virus going around. But uh, the big difference that we have compared with last June is that there is definitely light at the end of the tunnel. And we see it because the vaccinations, uh, be them you know, um, ARN messenger or traditional vaccines are now really being rolled out and, 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 and it's now finally accelerating over here in Europe. So by all account, uh, it seems that end of June, about 70% of the population should be uh, vaccinated, at least with the first jab. In, in the United States, um, vaccinations are at a higher percentage than in Europe. Do you think that there is a problem in Europe and that people don't want to be vaccinated? There's a fear of being vaccinated the way there is in some parts of the United States. Is there a, a, a kind of a political or a 
health-related reason why some people just do not want to be vaccinated? Or is that not going to be a problem in Europe when you want to try to get everybody vaccinated? First of all, there are different vaccines. Uh, some of them are much more standard and traditional and, and, and give rise to less anxiety on the part of people. So that has to do with the category of vaccinations. Second, there are some trials that have had their little um, hiccups along the way, which has also shaken a little bit the confidence that people had in the simple principle of vaccinations. And third, you have a category of people that are uh, reluctant to any kind of vaccinations. I mean, this is not peculiar to uh, Europe. It is also the case, as I understand, in California, where quite a lot of uh, a good percentage of the population is, is, is simply uh, hostile to vaccination as a matter of principle. So we have all that uh, combined. But what we have observed lately is a much larger proportion of the population that is prepared to be vaccinated. I think in the last two months, it has really changed quite a bit. And we see more uh, a larger proportion of people here in Europe who are prepared to be vaccinated. It varies within Europe, by the way. Uh, the French tend to be uh, less uh, <laughs> less willing to be vaccinated than uh, than others. I assume you've been vaccinated. Did you have any side effects, or do you did okay? I only had the first jab so far. So so far, so good. Okay, so let's talk about the economy in Europe right now. Um, the United States—they're projecting a, a six or seven percent GDP growth this year, which is fueled a bit by the enormous amount of stimulus we put into the economy. What type of growth rate are you predicting now for this year in Europe? Europe this year is, is looking like a, a tale of two halves, if I may borrow from uh, Charles Dickens. Um, the first half, not, not particularly good, and the first quarter in particular, uh, not good, most likely negative still. Second quarter, better. And, and clearly we're seeing good signs in terms of PMI, in terms of high frequency numbers, uh, that, that is indicating that we are now on the way up. And the second half of 21 with the robust rebound and good solid economic growth. So that's what I say, you know, a story of two halves um, in 21. Our baseline is still the same. We're still seeing 21 at 4%, let's put it that way, uh, for the whole of the Euro area and 4.1% uh, uh, the year after. So it's not as strong as the numbers that you have in the US, but the uh, stimulus package that was put in place in 21 by the, uh, uh, the Biden administration is clearly helping uh, along the way. And the, the vaccination rollout that you have very effectively um, also put in place in the United States is, is, is helping. Now, like in, as in the United States, uh, the ECB has uh, taken enormous action to help the economy, lending money and buying bonds and so forth. Um, do you think that you have taken as much action as you need to take to keep the European economy on a good glide path? Or are you prepared to consider additional actions at this time or you think it's not necessary at this time? You know, I would observe, David, that what, what we have done uh, in the last year has proven uh, quite efficient. It was needed and uh, it was effective. When I look at the, uh, the, the result uh, in terms of financing, availability of liquidity, uh, spreads, yields, uh, all of that is, is telling us that we did what we had to do and what was needed in order to support the economy, in order to avoid fragmentation, 
in order to make sure that liquidity was flowing and that banks were able to lend to enterprises and to households. So I think all that has been uh, very, uh, was very needed, proved to be efficient. And I think our commitment um, to, you know, make sure that there is favorable financing conditions available for all uh, economic actors on an ongoing basis as we are still going through this pandemic, as we have not yet uh, crossed the bridge towards uh, full-fledged recovery remains intact. So we need to continue to support. We are on our way, but certainly not well into the way of the recovery where we, we need to be. I've said on a couple of occasions that the European economy is, is on two crutches, the fiscal one, the monetary one, and those crutches have to remain supporting the patient until it can walk on its own. We're not there yet. In the United States, obviously, we have a different situation where one country with one fiscal policy or theoretically one fiscal policy, you have uh, more than one fiscal policy. Is there anything that you think that the, the ECB or Europe can do to improve the situation where you have one monetary policy and maybe something closer to one fiscal policy, or is that too far into the future to worry about? You know, the, the European Union and the United States are structured in a different way. And, and the European Union is, uh, has been work in progress for the last 70 years and will continue to be so for probably another few decades. For the moment, what we have is clearly a monetary union uh, that works well. And we have different fiscal authorities in each of the 19 member states that form uh, the, the uh, monetary union. Sometimes it doesn't work so well and it produces headwinds uh, in, the, in the nose of monetary policy. Sometimes it works well and it actually leverages and, and optimizes monetary policy and vice versa. I think in the crisis that we have just seen, monetary policy uh, and fiscal policy actually worked hand in hand well and complemented each other. Now, granted, it originated from 19 different uh, countries, but it was well coordinated and it was disciplined so that it could reinforce uh, what monetary policy was doing and vice versa, monetary policy was amplifying what the fiscal authorities decided to, to do in order to face this unbelievable economic situation that we were facing after this horrible uh, health uh, pandemic that affected all of us. Your, your predecessor famously said that he would do whatever it took to support the euro. Um, mm -hmm. You haven't had quite the same um, existential threat to the euro, but the euro is actually doing reasonably well compared to what some people might have thought. Do you worry about the euro's future or its uh, value vis-a-vis -vis the dollar? How do you look at the euro? I'll tell you something, uh, David, I didn't repeat what Mario rightly right. said at the time, that the ECB would do whatever it takes within its mandate. But what I said very clearly on March the 18th at 11.30 p.m., if I recall, by way of a tweet, because that's the way you have to communicate those days, is that our support to the euro had no limit. And anybody in their right mind who knows how the ECB functions, who knows how monetary policy support functions in this part of the world, got the message that because of the exceptional circumstances that we were facing, we had put in place an exceptional response that was pandemic emergency based, but that would have no limit, that would hamper 
the effectiveness of the monetary policy we had to put in place. So I think the, you know, our support to the euro has no limit was a message that got through very well and produced the impact that it had to produce. Now, in terms of the euro itself, I, I would like to just mention that we, we just yesterday had the result of an annual survey that is conducted about the euro and whether people in Europe actually like the euro, support it, feel comfortable with it, and the same with the ECB. And we have seen notable improvement and progress on both accounts. The Europeans are very attached to the euro. They want it, they like it, they support it. And that has improved over the course of the pandemic. And the same goes uh, true as well for the, for the ECB. But the euro itself as a currency, because that was your point, it's not something that we actually target. Uh, it's something that we monitor relative to other currencies around the world. And we monitor very carefully uh, any movement, uh, be it depreciation and even more so appreciation. And we are particularly attentive to the impact that it has on, on, on price and pressures that it can uh, apply to prices. Now, do you coordinate very much or have consultations with the U.S. Fed chairman, uh, Jay Powell? How does that work? We talk on a regular basis with Jay Powell, and um, particularly in times of, uh, of, of crisis. During the second half of March, I think we, we spoke, all, not daily, but every other day we were on the phone to each other. And um, clearly we had particular matters, matters to address at that point. We responded collectively with other uh, key central banks around the world to make sure that there would be masses of liquidity around because there was this, this dash for cash. People in, in the trade, in the markets, wanted to, to hang on to dollars and strong currencies. So we put in place the, swap, the open swap lines that we had to reactivate. And we did that on a very you know, expedited, very efficient and well-coordinated basis. But in normal times, we talk also on a regular basis about uh, our respective economic circumstances, uh, what we are facing. We talk about uh, innovation, new developments, climate change, CBDCs and what have you. One thing that we you know, do not coordinate is clearly our monetary policy because we operate, as you know, in different environments with a different point in the cycle, and we are independent of each other. Let's talk about climate change. You just mentioned that. Jay Powell has talked about the impact of climate change on the U.S. economy, and I, I think uh, it's obviously a, a subject of great interest in Europe as well. How do you look at climate change and the, and the impact on the European economy? Is it something you can deal with, or it's outside of your mandate? I would say it's not for us, but it's for all of us. Those who are driving that bus of the fight against climate change are the governments, are the uh, fiscal authorities, uh, are the ministers of uh, energies, and uh, whether they remove subsidies to fossil fuel or whether they uh, set the right price for carbon emission and uh, set it up in the form of ETS or carbon tax or whatever, it's for them to decide. And those are the most critically important decisions. Uh, in the same vein, it is for uh, policymakers and government to regulate in such a way that we take the right, both social, societal, cultural and economic decisions and, and deviate from where we are heading. So it's, they are driving that bus. But it's for us all, because in whichever position we are, we can play a role. Now, clearly, for a central bank like the ECB, 
we have a mandate, but climate change has an impact. It has an impact on how we are going to model our assessment of the economy, our forecast. Uh, it has an impact on how we're going to devise monetary policy. It has an impact on where our star is going to be and how much space we have in terms of monetary policy action. It has an impact on how we manage portfolios. And as you know, because we are buying uh, not only sovereign bonds, but also corporate bonds, clearly we, we have to assess that portfolio and do proper risk management uh, of those bonds that we have in stock and those that we will continue to buy under the purchase programs that we have in place. And we have to take that into account very much when we supervise uh, the banking sector. So for in those three dimensions, climate change actually plays a role that we need to factor in our models, our monetary policy design, and our supervision. In the United States, income inequality has been a big issue before the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic seems to have exacerbated income inequality. Um, is the same issue uh, uh, rising in Europe? Uh, you've had less income inequality, but has income inequality to the level you had it gotten to be worse in Europe, or is that not an issue there compared to the United States? Well, the, the inequalities in general uh, have been exacerbated by the pandemic in Europe as well. Uh, because when we look at the... Uh, at the, the unemployment, the jobs that have gone, they are largely uh, those jobs with the low skills, with the uh, younger workers, and a little less so um, women. But the two categories that are worst hit are those with low skills, are those who have just joined the job markets. So no question that that impact of the pandemic has accentuated inequalities in that respect. So we're talking about inequalities of income, possibly inequality of opportunities as well. This podcast is supported by Allstate. When someone poses the question, do you see where I'm coming from? Are they checking to see if you actually saw where they were a few moments ago? Of course not. They're checking to make sure you understand their point of view that you're aware of their background, their history, and the things that they've experienced. These things shape how we view the world, engage with others, and expect to be treated. And most importantly, they give us the context necessary to understand one another and appreciate other perspectives. That's why Allstate, along with the Aspen Institute and Facing History and Ourselves, created the Better Arguments Project, an initiative that teaches people the importance of listening to understand context and how to have constructive disagreements. After all, part of protecting a community is bringing it together. Learn more at betterarguments.org. So um, you were living in Europe for many years before you came to the uh, to United States to work at uh, Baker McKenzie and then also uh, when you were at the IMF. How would you compare your experience in the United States with sexism that you experienced <laughs> written about in the United States compared to sexism in Europe? Where is there less sexism? And do you have any comment on what is now known in the United States as Sofagate, where the leader of a European leader, uh, the European Council was uh, not allowed to, I guess, get a seat because she was maybe a woman. That was at least what was reported. David, I think there's plenty of that still going around. 
and it's it's very very unfortunate and very sad uh, and it's it's a, not only is it offensive uh, to those who have to bear the brunt of it and put up with that but it's a huge waste of opportunity and it's a huge waste of talent i mean it does take the form of the uh, sofa gate kind of business uh, which is an expression of the sexism that that we have around but it also takes the form of those sort of lack of access uh, discrimination uh, hinted uh, biases dismissive comments and 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 it goes on and on and on and i think it 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 you know it would really be to the credit of policymakers governments uh, leaders of institutions leaders in the corporate world to take a stand and steps in order to make sure that that doesn't happen uh, as i said from an economic point of view only looking from that angle it's a huge waste of talent but do you still experience you're the head of the ecb one of the most important jobs certainly in europe and maybe the world do you experience sexism at this point or you're above that because of your exalted position or that is not the case you still experience it well, no, i still experience it of course you know the world of finance david and 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 uh, it's 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 not short of uh, sexism that that world and uh, i i do read comments here and there i do see market observers who have those those vaguely uh, dismissive and and uh, often <laughs> patronizing comments about uh, what i do or what i wear or what i say there's a very lovely belgium saying which says you know it's it's to laugh if it wasn't to cry and and i try to stay on the laughing side rather than the crying side because i don't want to be sad so um you were as in your youth a synchronized swimmer and you were on the national team in france on the synchronized swimming um and i know you like to swim do you have a chance when you're at the ecb to swim anymore or because of covid there's no swimming anymore swimming is gone david all the pools are closed germany is still under serious lockdown and uh, and i i i can't wait uh, to go back in the water and to and to swim again yeah So have you been running the ECB remotely and is your staff working remotely or have you been in the office? Uh it's it's been mixed hybrid in that I I spend generally about 2 weeks in Frankfurt one week uh away because it's uh you know essentially the ECB like so many other buildings is is emptied of its uh, of its normal staff workers. Uh most of them are working remotely some of them from their apartments in Frankfurt others from their normal residence back wherever they are from but it's it's a pretty lonely place to work from so i spend time there but i i try to also uh, relocate a bit uh, not too far from family members here in paris which is where i am at the moment i'm not going to pretend anything else but i have set up a subsidiary of the ecb in my apartment and uh, this is the ecb bis in paris um let me ask you this um what about um uh going forward in the united states many companies and government organizations are saying once the pandemic is over we don't think our employees want to come back to work 5 days a week and work the way they used to um have you had to address that issue yet and do you think the ecb will and other european big organizations will come back to work 5 days a week in the traditional way or not the answer to that is no uh and we are working on it and we have been consulting with staff uh on it and we are surveying staff to understand exactly how they feel about it but we've also all of us i think learned enormously from that period of time and we we have learned skills that we didn't have 
We've experienced uh, remote uh, working relationships. We have not lost much in terms of productivity, quite sometimes to the contrary. But my, my take on it is that we will probably move towards a hybrid mo model where there will be work from home, uh, teleworking, we call it here, uh, and work from the office and a combination of both. We work with people and we need to have uh, people come together, uh, talk to each other, look at each other's eyes, body and, and, and uh, reaction uh, in order to have innovation, in order to have creativity, in order to have brain picking and brain sharing, uh, which tend to produce the best outcomes. So I think it, it's going to be a combination of both. We need to guard against the absolute enthusiasm about teleworking and doing everything from home, because I think it raises issues of forming a community, which is, which is also what work is about. And we need to guard against this work-life balance, which can be really difficult to, you know, to preserve uh, for the sanity of people. We, we have been very attentive to the psychological health of people uh, when they work remotely and they, they, they know no limit. Uh, so if somebody wants to be an employee of the ECB, how many languages do they have to speak? What is the main language when you're conducting business? Is it French or German or English or all of them? How do you conduct business in what language? <laughs> it will surprise you, especially now that the that Brexit arrangement has just been voted by the European Parliament uh, that sees uh, the UK exiting the European Union. But English is definitely the lingua franca. Uh, and it's only the Irish uh, in, the, uh, in the European Union who hold English as their language. Let's talk about cryptocurrencies for a moment. Uh, there are many people who think it's a great investment opportunity. Other people think it's designed to do things that are illicit. Some people uh, are thinking it's the wave of the future. What is the ECB's view on uh, cryptocurrencies? I think we tend to distinguish between the crypto assets, which we regard as a category of asset with its own uh, logic, its own dynamics, and its own downside, but clearly uh, that need to be supervised as such and as assets. We don't regard them as, as currencies. On the other hand, you know, stable coins issued eventually by big techs, such as Facebook, for instance, with DM, uh, fall into a different category and would certainly like to be considered and like to play the role of a currency. And to that extent, I think that they should certainly be also properly regulated, supervised, and fall under the same uh, category of those that conduct the same business. In other words, if they operate like a bank, if they take deposits like a bank, uh, they should be regulated and supervised like a bank. We look at all these things with the concern of monetary policy, financial stability, uh, information of uh, consumers, and uh, the supervision that we need to guarantee to consumers of financial products and, uh, and security when it comes to financing of terrorism and anti-money laundering uh, regulations. Let me ask you about digital currencies. You print the, uh, the euro and uh, many different denominations. Do you foresee at some point that that you will go to a completely digital euro currency, or is that too far into the future to think about? No, it's not too far in the future, uh, David. And we are actually looking at it very carefully and uh, exploring all the options, all risks associated with those options, 
Uh, we have consulted with the Europeans. We had a very broad consultation to understand whether it really corresponded to what people wanted. And it seems to be the case while they insist on preserving their privacy. Um, and we will be deciding in the summer uh, whether we move ahead with experimenting for a period of two years before we really uh, give the green light to uh, setting it into motion. It's, it's, it's not an overnight process. It's a fairly complicated and a highly technical adventure that we would be launching. And if you look at what has happened around the world, the Chinese have, have started experimenting in 2015, and they're still not about ready to launch. Sweden started back about five years ago, and they, they believe that they won't be ready until 26. Mm -hmm. So all of that takes time, raises a lot of issues, and, uh, and it needs to be done well. I think it's Jay who said, uh, I don't mind not being first as long as I'm right doing it. I think we all feel about the same. If we get it done, it better be right, and we won't get a second chance to, to do so. But it's, it's what people aspire to. And it will not move cash away. I think cash will still be around. So one of the strengths of uh, one's currency, I presume, is the uh, desire of people to counterfeit it. And I suppose the most counterfeited currency is the $100 bill. But uh, is the euro heavily counterfeited? And are you responsible at the ECB for preventing counterfeiting? Uh, we are responsible as a euro system to issue banknotes and to make sure that the technical devices, the ink that we use, the texture of, of the banknotes, that is a very uh, intimate mixture of paper and, and cotton, uh, is, is such that it will be very difficult to counterfeit. But there, there are still some uh, counterfeiting uh, going around. Not See, much, though. You mentioned earlier Brexit, and Brexit, I guess, is sort of in effect. Uh, eventually, the British Parliament will finally, finally vote for it, I assume. But... What has been the impact on Europe and the EU of, uh, of Brexit? As bad as people thought, not as bad as people thought, or unclear yet? It's, it's a little bit early to say what the, the exact economic impact will be. What we already see uh, in the trade numbers is, is a very significant reduction of trade between the UK and the European Union. Uh, that, that is already obvious in the numbers. It, it has dramatically uh, fallen uh, on both sides. But, and it's affecting the UK more than it affects the uh, EU, if only because of the size of the respective markets. So when you're dealing with heads of state or uh, prime ministers, is it the case where you feel that um, you have to convince them of something or they have to convince you of something? As you said, you have the authority to do what you want, but is who is trying to convince who of various things in, in most of your bilateral conversations with heads of state or prime ministers? Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the privacy of this discussion doesn't allow me to share the content uh, with you. What I, what I can tell you, though, is that when I sit at the European Leaders' Council table, I have seen uh, during the pandemic and in the multiple uh, video conferences and a, a few physical meetings that they had, a really strong sense of unity in, in the face of the danger uh, that was upon all of them. And that, that, has, that has been a bit of a change. What, what do we talk about? We talk about, I think that the conversations have predominantly been about the pandemic and about vaccinations and about the implementation rollout, if, 
effectiveness and actual support to the people because the choice was made in Europe of you know people of a profit and any of the uh, the new instruments the uh, the schemes put in place were intended to keep the economy afloat to keep income going and to make sure that people were not losing it all as a result of the pandemic okay and uh, the G7 meeting is occurring in Europe in the near future president biden will be making his first trip to europe as president what are the expectations that europeans have of this meeting and are europeans generally feeling um, differently about the United States than they did a couple years ago or under President Trump, or is it too early to, to say? I think the, uh, the next G7 will be in, uh, in the UK, and there is huge expectations on the part of the Europeans because the, the tone at the top has changed. The conversation is different. There is a conversation with actual content and with actual you know, common references common baseline, common denominator on many, many accounts. And, uh, you know, I've heard it and seen it very, very welcome in this part of the world. There is a a sort of rejuvenated sense that the fraternity of arms that we had experienced decades ago is, is, is still alive and there is a concern for each other and a care for each other's security and, and destiny. Yeah. I might be a bit romantic, but that, that's the way I see it. So uh, as you look forward uh, the next year, over the next 12 months, the biggest challenge that you face at the ECB is getting the economy to be better than it currently is, dealing with the pandemic. What would you say is your biggest challenge over the next 12 months? The biggest challenge we have is to make sure that we deliver on our mandate. I think this is, this is in a way very helpful because we have those, those track uh, or this track, which is price stability defined by reference to uh, our inflation aims. So everything that we have to do is riveted towards that. But of course, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of an economy that is, that is, that is back, out of enterprises that are investing, consumers that are consuming, and, and an economy that is, that is uh, in, in revival mode. But I think the jury is still out as to how will people respond post-pandemic when the constraints disappear, when containment measures are off, when lockdowns is lifted? Are they going to go about their business as they did? Will the way forward be different? How will they spend? How will they use their savings? How will people invest? Will green investment be really driving the show? Uh, Will investment in digital be improving productivity? Will there be the enhancement to the economy that we aspire to? I think those are all the questions that we have, which are both exciting and, and a bit uh, worrying because we don't have the answer. So what we are trying to do is to provide in that sort of sea of uncertainty, a little bit of certainty by saying favorable financing conditions we will preserve, rest assured. Now. One of the people who it is reported uh, twisted your arm to take this position uh, is Angela Merkel, the chancellor in Germany. She persuaded you to do this and uh, she'll be stepping down in the not too distant future. And she's been the leader of Germany for very long, more than a decade. What do you think the impact will be on European leadership in terms of around the world or in the impact on the EU or the ECB of not having Angela Merkel there? It's clearly a a seat of power that is suddenly vacated 
by someone who had been around for 16 years and who will be replaced by another chancellor whose name, personality and political programs are still unknown at this point in time. So I think, you know, in such an environment as the European Union, vacuum in leadership is not for long. I would suspect that other leaders are going to step in, are going to try to uh, take a bit of that space. But at the end of the day, a country like Germany, which is the largest player in the European Union, will continue to play a significant role, which is why the elections that are coming up in September are so important uh, in terms of outcome. And I, I have no idea, don't ask me, uh, <laughs> who is next, whether it's going to be a woman or a man, I don't know, and I, I, I shouldn't say, but, but it, it will matter enormously. Your predecessor uh, is now the head or prime minister of his country, Italy. What do you think about the idea of ECB presidents becoming presidents or prime ministers of their country? You think it's a good precedent? <laughs> I think it's a silly question, David. <laughs> All right. So uh, you like the title president of the ECB, but you're happy with it just being the president of the ECB. Is that correct? I've got my hands and my brain completely full. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much for an interesting conversation. Christine Lagarde is president of the European Central Bank. Previously, she was managing director of the International Monetary Fund and served in the French government as economic finance minister and trade minister. David Rubenstein is co-founder and co-chair of the Carlyle Group in Washington, D.C. He's a member of the Aspen Strategy Group. Their conversation was held by the Aspen Security Forum and the Aspen Economic Strategy Group. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Security Forum and the Aspen Economic Strategy Group, and this show is produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. Thank you.